Good morning. I uh, want you to think so, uh, with me a moment. You remember maybe the first story that you heard probably as a child that was from the Bible that made a difference to you that, that you said, wow, that's amazing. You know, there are a bunch of stories of the miracles of God in the Bible. They're, they're throughout time and places from Old Testament and New. There's so many miracles, so many times where God intervenes, where God makes a difference. We see lives changed, lives saved because of the miraculous work of God. Remember Daniel and the lion's den? That was probably one of those Sunday school stories you heard. Not once, twice, probably 10 or 15 times as you went through. But it was a miracle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, being asked to bow down to an image that he created, and they said, no, we're not going to do it. And because of that, he says, all right, I'll show you. I'll put you in a fiery furnace. See how you deal with that. And you remember? They went in the fiery furnace. But they didn't even smell like smoke when they got out. And in the New Testament, we read about Jesus and his miracles. You remember the story of Jairus' daughter? She's dead. The mourners are already at the house. They're already grieving. And Jesus throws them out. And he proceeds to resurrect her from the dead. And resurrection, you want to talk about resurrection, how about Lazarus? Three days, dead, in a tomb, starting to stink. And he's resurrected. Those are the miraculous stories that we remember and we, are, we tell our children and our children's children and on and on it goes because we see God intervene. And we want to point to that and say, that's what God's about. But what about Abel? Remember Abel? Cain and Abel? The firstborn of Adam and Eve? You remember what happens to Abel? Cain kills him for no good reason. Basically because Cain hated the fact that God looked at, his off- at, at Abel's offering and said, he did it the right way, you did it the wrong. So Cain says, I'll take care of that. Or how about Jonathan? Remember the story of Jonathan, Saul's son, who was next in line for the throne? But he realized what was going on and what God was doing in David's life. And what did he do? He said, look, David, the throne's yours. But you know what happened to Jonathan? He was killed on the battlefield. What a difference he could have made. But he died. One of the worst deaths that you read of in the Bible is Uriah's. Uriah, who was a loyal subject, a loyal soldier to David, King David, 
finds himself killed by that very king who's trying, King David, who's trying to hide his sin. His life cut out. All these died early and for all the wrong reasons, unjust reasons, reasons that we'd look at and say that's horrific. And the truth of the matter is it still happens today, doesn't it? Folks, thousands of Christians each year die for their faith long before they ever should for all the wrong reasons. So what about their miracle stories? Why did God choose to rescue, to intervene in the lives of some, but not others? Well, that's what I want us to look at today, that question. So let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, help us to understand your ways. Help us to understand how you work in our world today, how you intervene in our lives. And Father, in the times that we have questions that we don't understand, I pray that we will turn to the Bible for the source of answers. Father, may what we hear today from your word enrich our lives, challenge us, and give us a sense of your presence and provision for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. To talk about this, when does God intervene and when does he not, I want to look at a story today from Acts 12. You'll see it at the very beginning, Acts 12, verse 1 is where it starts. And we don't have time to read through the whole story, but I'm going to read the first part of it. In today's story, there are two disciples, two leaders, with two very different outcomes in the story. There's Peter and James. Let's look at the story to see how God works in their lives and that even when we may face an early death, an unjust death in this world, that God's still at work. Let's read the story from Acts 12. It says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, this King Herod is not King Herod of when Jesus was a baby, okay? This is grandson. This is the grandson of that king. This Herod is well-connected with Rome. In fact, he grew up in Rome. He grew up best friends, actually, with the emperor of the time. And so he's connected. He doesn't have to worry about his position like others may. But nevertheless, King Herod, like all leaders, looks for political advantages, right? Ways to manipulate people. Ways to put people on your side. He's no different. Look at what he does. He, being Herod, had James, the brother of John, one of the disciples, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Folks, there were a body of Christians back then, but there were a lot more Jews. And when Herod looked to say, well, how can I keep the people content? He saw the Christians and said, if I 
silence them, then the Jews will be happy. And so he started on that journey. He takes one of the big church leaders of the day in James, and how we read about his death is this, these few words, put to death with the sword. And that's the last we know of James. But then there's Peter's story. When Herod saw this, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. We don't have time to read the rest of the story, but I'm going to tell it to you. Basically, think about what's going on in the church. James has been killed. Peter, the other leader, major leader in the church, is arrested knowing what his fate is as well. You think the church had normal services that week? They were scared. They were hurting. They didn't know what was next. We know from the story as it goes on further, the part we're not going to read, that they were in earnest prayer asking God to intervene in this situation. They were in crisis. How was God going to respond? Peter has a different outcome than James. In prison, he's chained. In prison, he's guarded by four guards all the time that have nothing to do but look at him. Two on each side of him and two in front of him to keep anybody from coming in with iron gates closed. Peter wakes up in the middle of the night being shaken by what he sees as an angel. He thinks it's a dream. And it sounds like a dream. What happens? The chains just fall off. The two soldiers beside him don't stir when he gets up. He walks past the two guards. The gates open. And he finds himself out in the middle of the street. The angel leaves, and he says, okay, when's the dream going to be over? But finally, it gets through his thick head, this isn't a dream. This is reality. I've just been saved by the miracle of God. What a miracle. If you want to find humor in the Bible, people say there's not humor in the Bible, read the rest of the story when he goes to the house of the believers and they don't believe there's no way he can be alive, it's a hilarious story if you stop and think about it. But here you have Peter with the miracle we want. But let's go back to James. Where's his miracle? His body's over there and his head's over here. What about James? Had he done something wrong? No. Total unjust killing. Did the people of the church not pray enough for him and they did for Peter? I don't believe so. So why James? He was killed, we know, because he was a leader of the church. In fact, we know from the Bible that he was one of the three that Jesus trained for leadership. We know because in the death of Jairus' daughter, who does he take to see her brought back to life? Peter, James, and John. 
we know when Jesus is transformed, shows white and brilliant, almost showing the radiation that I think we will see in heaven of him. Who's there to experience it? Peter, James, and John. Who's there to hear Jesus have a conversation with Elijah and Moses to understand that what God is doing with Jesus fulfills what the law and the prophets say? It's Peter, James, and John. Who's there at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus walks with his disciples to pray? And he asks three to go further with him into the garden. One of the reasons why we know what Jesus prayed is because Peter, James, and John went with Jesus to pray. They were the leaders of the church. So why, after all this investment in Jesus to James, is he dead 10 years later? That doesn't make sense. God would surely know that James isn't going to make it, so invest in John. That's who he should do. Or, or get somebody else, Thomas, to be one of the three. So it would be a longer time span of being able to leave. But that's not what God did, is it? So where is the miracle for James? That's what we ask. And that's where we need to think. I make the argument that in this story, the greater miracle wasn't the escape of Peter. The greater invention, intervention by God was in James' life. Huh? How can this be? James' severed head is over here and his body's over there. Peter's out preaching the gospel of Jesus, leading the church, and James is no more. Oh, yes, he is. Let's go to Stephen. The story of Stephen, the first martyr that we know to explain what we're talking about here. Stephen was one of those who was picked by the disciples to make sure that the feeding of the widows within the church was handled fairly. As in every church, there can be factions, and they were starting to develop a faction within the church, and the disciples said, we need to get people who can make sure that those factions don't develop. Welsh. And Stephen was one of those. But evidently, he did a lot of talking too, because the Jews of his day didn't like him either, because he was talking about Jesus being the Messiah, and they had none of that. And so they have him arrested. And when he's arrested, he is put on trial, and he gives a story for his defense. If you want to read a comprehensive sort of review of the Old Testament, you'll find it in no better place than in the story that Stephen tells. But he proceeds to tell how God has worked throughout the Jewish people's lives, and then he says, and the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus, it's not in the temple. And at that, the leaders become furious, and they don't even wait for the trial to end. They don't even wait for him to be sentenced. They carry him out immediately out of town to stone him. And as they are stoning him, 
Stephen sees something that is for us to see as well. Let's look at it in Acts 7, at the end of Acts 7 in verse 55 through 56. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Don't just read that like you read any normal passage, folks. Moses would have loved to see what Stephen just saw. Why? Why does Stephen see that scene? He sees Jesus and God in their throne while he's on earth, being stoned at that very moment. He doesn't even feel the pain of the stones, it doesn't seem. Because the vision is his reality. What does the first martyr's glimpse into heaven tell us? I think God is making a point. Why God allows Stephen to see it is because he's the first of what will be many. What will be every one of us as believers' final end. This world, in some form or fashion, we're going to die. But what is God's promise? This world can abuse you, it can persecute you, can even kill you. But God is still the ultimate decider of fate. That's what Stephen saw. And that's why Paul, who happened to be on the wrong side of the story at that moment, that's why Paul saw it as well. Because it's going to change Paul's life as God works in his life. Do you see in the story the miracle that Stephen sees? Let's go back to Acts chapter 12 again and Peter and James. Which was the greatest miracle? To see God or to walk out of jail free? Which one would you choose? See the point. The point isn't just made there. It's made over and over again in the Bible. You read the Old Testament and the New Testament. It talks about how this life is temporary. We're in the tent, Paul says, but we've got a home. He says our citizenship is in heaven. It isn't in the United States of America, folks. As a believer, our citizenship's in heaven. That's what they live on. That's what allows them to do what they do. In the Old Testament, we read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And told you a little bit about that story, but the most powerful king in the world at that time sets up this image and says, all right, all my people got to bow down to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been taken captive from Judah and put up to Babylon to serve, are there. And they refuse to bow. The word gets to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, you got three people over here who aren't bowing to that image. 
Nebuchadnezzar goes to him and says, what's going on here? And they say, well, we're not going to do it. Look at their words from Daniel. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king when, when the king asked, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Wait a second. Get that. They're talking to the most powerful man in the world at that moment. And they're saying, we don't need to talk to you. You're not in control of us. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar heard that and said, oh, okay, I'm sorry, my mistake. No. He says, as, as they go on and say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. That's the miracle, the way we perceive it. And that is what happens. But don't pass over their next words before the miracle because this is their belief. Look at what they say next. But even if God does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He says, put as much fire in that thing as you can and have it glow red because we're going to show people what this is. But they are rescued. They go through the furnace, but they come out. Like I said earlier, not even smelling smoke. Folks, I light a grill, I start smelling the smoke immediately. They've been in a fire. It's a miracle. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith was not based on God performing a miracle that day, that moment. It was based on a relationship they had with the God who could perform the miracle then, but who would they trusted as well later when they looked at death. They recognized that the strongest king on earth does not control their fate. A king could kill them, but it doesn't change the power of God. How about you? What do you believe? Do you see the greatest miracle in the Bible is not what happened to Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Lazarus being raised from the dead? Folks, that's not the greatest miracle in the Bible. Those are miracles at points in time, but you know what? Do you see Daniel today? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Are they in the audience today? No, they eventually die. And so will we. The greatest miracle in the Bible is death has no victory. Do you see that miracle? Peter lived that miracle out when he was freed from prison. But you know what? 
A few years later, guess what happened to him? He was martyred for his faith. Which miracle would Peter pick? Being saved once again from being a martyr or for being in the presence of God for eternity? That's the greatest miracle. And you know the blessing of that miracle? It's not a one-time story. It's our story. As a believer in Christ, it is the ultimate miracle. And every single believer will experience it. Does God still do miracles today? Every single moment of every single second when a believer dies, there is a miracle performed. I'm not trying to make light of our struggles, of persecution, and of death. Jesus wasn't either. He talked about being in the resurrection and the life, that no one would die if they came to him. But we also see his agony, don't we? when he faces his own death. He wasn't flipping about it. It hurt. It was painful. But he trusted in a God who would perform the greatest miracle. He knew that their doing, their work through the Trinity, the power of the Trinity would prevail in the moment in time. That's why Paul can say, Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? And talking about Paul, let's think about him a moment. He was at the stoning of Stephen. He was a participant in some form of fashion. He at least heard all the conversation that went on. I think one of the reasons why we have the story of the stoning of Stephen in the Bible, in the New Testament, in Acts, is because Paul was there. And so when Luke's writing down, guess who's one of Luke's companions? It's Paul. He says, I can give you a first-hand count of what we did to Stephen. So Paul had experienced a lot in his life. His life had been transformed from that moment where we see him at the stoning of, of Stephen on the wrong side of Jesus we know the miracle story that happens in his life in dramatic fashion that changes him forever. That he becomes a believer. And in becoming a believer, he experienced a lot of pain, left for dead many times, thrown out of town after town, shipwrecked. He goes on and mentions so many different times he faced diversity in life. But there's a story I want us to look at and end with today that he tells. In a letter that he writes to a church, a letter that we call Philippians. Paul's in jail. We're talking about Jesus. And he's not certain of his fate. I think you get a glimpse in Philippians that he believes that God isn't through with him yet, but he doesn't know that for certain as he writes this letter. But in this letter, he says some words that we need to hear. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Folks, Paul didn't look at death flippantly either. What is he asking you to pray for, for him, for courage? So that God wouldn't be ashamed of him. So he would stand up for his faith as he faced another challenge. That's what he's asking for. That's what he's praying for. But he knew the possibility was there of death. And he had to think about it. I can't help but to think that as Paul wrote these next words, he thought about what he saw with Stephen and what he heard Stephen say. I see the Son of God at the right hand of God himself. And so Paul writes these words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. You know, if, if I look at myself and, and put myself, can I write those words? Do I believe that's my faith? To live is Christ and to die is gain. One of the ways I think you can see your maturity as a Christian is the more you come to believe those words the more you understand that while we live on this earth, we're called to serve God because he's developed a relationship with us and we want to express the love in that relationship. And that's what Paul's saying. To live is Christ. He's everything. But I know that this relationship will not be destroyed no matter what happens to me in this world. Because to die is to see what Stephen saw. Not just for a moment in time, but for an eternity. Paul doesn't say it'll be easy. He defines what he's living that day as labor. And it is, isn't it? It can be a struggle as we deal with a world that doesn't understand life the way we do. Folks, we live in a world that more and more sees the idea of a relationship of eternity as something that is foreign. That this life is all there is. And it's up to us to say, no. There is so much more. What do we do with it? How do we live it? The letter that Paul writes, he says over and over again, rejoice. Why? Well, certainly not because of the condition that Paul's in. It's because of a relationship that can never be destroyed. What we learn from the story of James and Peter is this. God invests in us in our eternal relationship, 
not an earthly relationship. James was not a bad investment. Having him being one of the leaders of the church and only living 10 years, from a worldly point of view, what do we say? We should have chosen somebody else. But God doesn't look at that that way. Because James is an eternal investment. It isn't about just this world. The second thing we learn, I hope, from this story is that in every believer, God performs the ultimate intervention, the ultimate miracle. Folks, one day we'll look at Daniel and say, man, that's some story. But hey, I've got a story too. It's the same story. God intervenes for eternity. There is a miracle performed in Peter's life that day that we read of in Acts 12. But there sure is a miracle also performed in James' life. Why James killed, not Peter, I can't answer that question. But I can tell you both of them received a miracle that day. Have you asked God to perform this ultimate miracle in you? The ultimate salvation. If you're unsure if you have or not, I'd love to sit down and talk to you about what that means. How Christ makes that ultimate miracle possible for anyone who believes. And if you are a believer, here's my question to you and to me. Do we live like it? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Let's close the prayer. Father, thank you for the miracle that you give us in life, the opportunity for our lives to be different, to be changed forever from being your enemy to being your child, from being a place of death to a place of life, to a relationship that goes on forever. Thank you for that ultimate miracle. May we cherish it. May we look forward to it. But God, as we live in this life, in this time, may we live for the one who loves us enough to give us that opportunity to see you, to see Jesus, the one who provides that salvation face to face. Thank you for that miracle. May we trust in it and may we live in it. In your son's name we pray.